Thank you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be back in Australia, to be back at the Opera House. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, as Anne's just said, I've written a novel, but I don't want to talk particularly specifically about the novel. Please buy it after if you feel inclined. But what I really want to do is to talk about some of the ideas behind the novel. And um, sometimes people say to me, you know, wh why did you even bother to write a novel? I thought you were supposed to be a non-fiction writer. And the reason I wrote a novel is that I believe that many of our ideas on love come from reading novels, also songs, films, etc. But essentially, we are very shaped by the love narratives that we read. And this could seem a little cruel. We, we tend to think that we love spontaneously, that we're not influenced by what we read and by what we see, but I think that we are. We love within a very historical, social context. There's that lovely biting aphorism from La Rochefoucauld. He says, there are some people who would never have fallen in love if they hadn't heard there was such a thing. That's a little extreme, but you get the, the idea that really when we love, we are taking a lot of our cues from the outside world. We honor certain feelings that we experience because other people are telling us to honor them. We suppress other feelings because people have told us not to pay them particular uh, attention. Now, we are nowadays firmly in a very distinctive era in the history of love. We are living in the era of romanticism. Romanticism is an intellectual movement that began in the salons, studies, garrets of European poets, novelists, writers uh, in the end, middle end of the 18th century. And nowadays, even if you've never heard of a single romantic poet or novelist from any garret in old Europe, and you're just having your love life here in Sydney, you are influenced because we all are by romanticism. So whether you can't, whether you don't necessarily know about it or feel it or touch it, it is all around us in the ether. We are living, ladies and gentlemen, in the era of romanticism. Now, what does romanticism tell us about love? It has a very distinctive set of arguments about what love is like, what we should expect from love, and how relationships should go. And let me run you through a few of those romantic assumptions. I think the first and most central assumption is that for all of us out there, there is most definitely a soulmate. We may not have met them already. We may be swiping left, right, furiously in order to try <laughs> and locate them. They exist, and eventually, if we keep going hard enough, we will find them, and when we find them, our soul will fuse with theirs. All areas that had previously been confused and lonely will be redeemed. We will no longer feel ourselves wordless, agonized, melancholic before the mysteries of existence. We have found a true friend and loneliness will be banished. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the person waiting for us somewhere out there, the soulmate. Um, how are we going to find this person? Well, big question. Um, the dominant answer of romanticism is by instinct. You know, for most of history, the way that people were matched up was by the elders of the community, by parents, by other people than the couple themselves. They was, it was what was known as a marriage of reason. 
And there were reasonable criteria, so-called reasonable criteria, which is maybe that you had a goat and they had a sheep or you had a plot of land and they had a plot of adjoining plot of land or whatever it was. And it was on that basis that these so-called dynastic marriages were made. Um, and that was the way in which people married, uh, have married for thousands of years, really since the beginning of time. But along comes romanticism and says, no, we are going to marry in a different way. We are going to marry by instinct. And the instinct is that somewhere along the line you will feel a special feeling, a very, very special feeling inside, a kind of excitement. And you don't know when it will strike you. Maybe you're at the bar, maybe you're at the swimming pool, uh, maybe you're just waiting in line for something, but you'll spot somebody and without necessarily knowing too much about them, indeed the romantics were quite keen on it happening without knowing anything about them other than simply seeing their face, you will know that's your soulmate. And so that special feeling has become venerated. And whoever, first of all, you don't question that special feeling. So, you know, if you said to your parents, I've met somebody, and they go, oh, right, tell, tell me what, you just say, I've had that special feeling, and everyone just, you know, the waters part, and the couple <laughs> moves forward because there's been that special feeling. So once the special feeling is announced, you know, you raise the flag, the special feeling has happened, and that's terrific. Of course, if you don't feel that special feeling, it's a, bit, it's a bit embarrassing. Is something wrong with me, etc. So you may start to fake the special feeling. You kind of like someone, but you fake that you've had this uh, romantic uh, uh, special feeling. Um, and so romanticism is very into the notion of the crush and the immediate sensation of certainty that you have met someone uh, uh, very special. Romanticism goes hand in hand with the developments of the railways in Europe uh, in the 19th century. And an awful lot of these meetings happen on trains in fiction. Uh, even in Russian fiction alone, you could build a library of stories in which the hero and heroine meet on a train. And without much knowledge, as I say, just the sight maybe of an ankle, an elbow, the curvature of a cheek, you will know that's a soulmate. And that's how it, it begins. So that's how, the, that's how you're going to find your life partner. Um, the romantics are very keen on the notion of happily ever after, that love is not just a passing phase, it is forever, um, till death do us part. Strikingly, um, many of the romantics die quite young, and um, so often the story begins, couple fall madly in love, and then <coughs> someone with a little <coughs> cough and then tuberculosis, and, uh, <coughs> and it's, you know, it's a beautiful love story, but it does end after a few months. But nevertheless, it's forever, in, in a sense. And uh, romantics are also very keen on suicide, ending things dr dramatically. So death has a curious relationship with love in the romantic uh, uh, point of view. The other essential thing about the romantics is that um, generally no one really has a job. Uh, none of the romantics really have jobs. So they can devote a lot of time to love. And they're spending a lot of time just in each other's arms. and Also, going for walks. Nature is incredibly important for the romantics. Um, going out into nature for long, long walks. Very particular places, waterfalls, very romantic uh, place. Also, places where the ocean uh, meets the land, dramatic cliffs, pounding of seas, very quintessentially romantic uh, places. Romantic times of day. Uh, dusk is a quintessentially romantic time, especially when you know, you've got a, a layer of clouds and the underside of the clouds are lit up by the shafts of the dying sun turning the sky a purpley, pinky hue. Very romantic uh, sort of uh, uh, moment, a moment to enforce love through the help of, of nature. Um, the romantics have a very um, uh, distinctive take on sex. Uh, people obviously have been having sex for um, all of human history, and um, there's been some love. But what the romantics do is a remarkable fusion of love and sex. Uh, they basically 
consecrate sex as the summit of love and the ultimate expression of love. So far from being merely a mechanical uh, uh, action, it becomes the most sincere expression of your feelings for another person, almost divine expression of tenderness for another person. Very beautiful. It has a slight drawback, which is that it turns adultery into a tragedy, a catastrophe. Because if you believe, uh, as the romantics do, that, that sex is the crowning expression of love, then any interest outside of the couple will be catastrophic in nature. And that's why almost every great novel of the 19th century in Europe is about adultery in one form or another, starting with uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, moving on to uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, and on and on. Uh, people have been having adultery for all of human history. It's been happening all the time. But what's new is the weight that's put on it. And it, as I say, it is a violation of everything that the Romantics believe that love is. Now, I should say that many of these romantic ideas are very beautiful. They're very exciting, and we all live through them, and um, it would be naive to um, some way dismiss them as um, irrelevant to the way we live. They are everywhere, and they are at the center of how we approach love. But I also want to insist that romanticism has been a catastrophe for our capacity to have good long-term relationships. And if we want to have a chance of succeeding at love, we will have to be disloyal to many of the romantic emotions that got us into relationships in the first place. Romanticism has spelt trouble for our capacity to endure and thrive in long-term relationships. Why do I say that? Well, let me run you through a few of the areas that I believe that romanticism has spelt difficulty for us in uh, uh, relationships. Um, so romanticism replaced an earlier vision of human nature, which tended to stress how fragile, broken, and very sinful we all were, an old Christian idea. Um, and romanticism comes along and dismisses this attitude as hopelessly pessimistic and insists instead on the purity and good nature of every human being. For the romantic, the romantics place an awful emphasis, an awful lot of emphasis on children. And children for the romantics are always good. They're always sweet. It begins with Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the mid-18th century. The child is the purest expression of humankind. And the only thing that makes a child bad is society. So only society corrupts children. But basically, it's a sign that we are born good. And the older view which was associated with um, Christian theologians like St. Augustine, which stressed the fundamental sinfulness. You know, St. Augustine argued that all of us bear within us the original sin of Adam, and therefore all of us... It's good to speak like this at a pulpit um, to an audience, but, but all of us... All of us are sinners or potential sinners and therefore need to be at the mercy of others and of the divine in order, I'm a secular Jew, but um, the divine in order to, uh, 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 to endure life. Now, romanticism does away with this and says to us that all of us are angelic by nature. The interesting thing is that romanticism coincides with the decline in organized religion. So just as religion is declining, romanticism rises and is in many ways a replacement, a secular alternative. So when we get together in love, you know, what's fascinating is the use, the beginning of the use of the word angel to refer not to those winged creatures up in the sky, but to refer to other human beings. And there's a marked increase of this in the age of romanticism. And nowadays, of course, many of us will cheerfully call our partner angel. So we are all of us, in a sense, in, through the lens of romanticism, 
good people. Our wings have been temporarily put aside, but essentially we're, we're pretty perfect people, not particularly tainted by original sin. Now, I think this is highly troubling for relationships because it leads to that absolute problematic dynamic within any relationship, which is self-righteousness. If you think that you're quite perfect and that your partner is quite perfect too, that's trouble anyway. And if you start a relationship, you'll soon start hitting upon things which will lead you to think that actually maybe they're not that perfect. Now, what do you do with that feeling if you're operating against an ideology that says that everyone and that your partner particularly is by nature good? Very unhelpful backdrop in which to negotiate the troubles of relationships. It's far better, I believe, to insist that all of us are in various ways deeply, and I don't mean this in any way in an insult, deeply crazy. I may not know... <laughs> I may not know exactly how you're crazy. I can tell you later how I'm crazy. I won't. Well, I might. Um, but, but basically, all of us, you know, none of us get through the gauntlet of early childhood, adolescence, etc., with our sanity entirely intact. We are all of us warped, distorted in very distinctive ways. It may take us 50 years to work out exactly how we're distorted, but we are distorted. Um, and this is a fundamental piece of knowledge which we should be taking with us into relationships with a big warning sign over us. Now, why are we so unable to conceive of ourselves as damaged and crazy and therefore so prone to self-righteousness? Well, part of the problem is that all of us have very low levels of self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is really, really hard to come by, partly because there's almost a conspiracy of silence around us. People don't quite tell us um, what they think of us. And um, therefore, we go through life where the average person who's met us for 20 minutes has a deeper insight into many of our flaws than we might achieve over a lifetime. Um, why, why don't people tell us this? Well, there's really no motive for them to tell us this at many stages. Our parents are not going to tell us certain things that they know. They can see things about us, but they're not going to tell us because they're very kind, they wish us well. It's not really their business. They're not going to go into it, and maybe they're blinded by their own affection for us. Um, there's our friends. Well, of course our friends are not going to tell us certain things about our characters, the ways in which we're difficult in particular, because all they really want from us is a pleasant evening out. They just... <laughs> They don't care. They don't, you really have to care about someone to be bothered to go into all that stuff about their true character. And our friends, certainly, you know, they can't be bothered. Uh, they, don't, they don't like us enough. Um, so it leaves then that other category, our exes. Well, our exes, you could expect that they will, somewhere along the lines, have, uh, have told us. But the thing on the whole, it's not really worth their while either. And so they tend to take their leave by saying things like they need to spend more time on their own, they need to develop their character, they'd like to go travelling. Nonsense! Of course not. They see certain things about you, but again, they're not going to go through it. They can't be bothered. They just want out. Let somebody else sort that out. So, so, um, so the thing is that we, we go through life um, not really knowing. I mean, it's very tender and poignant how sometimes um, some of us feel, probably some of you in the audience feel, that broadly speaking, you're quite easy to live with. I mean, does anyone, does anyone here think that they're kind of broadly speaking easy to live with, if only they met the right person? Like, there are a few people, a few people, you know, that's a, that's a very uh, a poignant combination whereby, a very romantic combination. I spent my early uh, uh, 20s absolutely convinced that the only thing that was missing uh, was really the right person. And if, so long as I met the right person, then all uh, would, would be well. So this notion that we might be easy to live with is um, uh, 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 deeply misleading and should be stamped out. Of course, we're not everybody from close up is trouble. 
Uh, and we need, we need, we need, uh, we need, we need to, to, to put this in mind, bear this in mind. If I was running the world, um, one of the key questions that we would always ask each other on an early dinner date without anything pejorative being meant by it is, how are you crazy? So I'm, I'm crazy like this, how, how about you? And that, and that we'd be expected to have a really thoughtful and kind of well thought through, non-defensive, non-hysterical answer to that question to be able to share with another person. Think how much time we would save. We don't need people in relationships to be perfect. We need them to have a handle on their imperfections and to be able to warn us and prepare us for the more noxious sides of their personalities outside of those critical moments when those personality distortions have deeply upset us. Uh, but it's very hard to do. And most of the time, we come upon discoveries about other people at moments when those discoveries have pained us deeply and therefore well, we are not likely to be in any way sympathetic. So the calm explanation of one's insanities to another person is one of the greatest gifts. And I think one of the best wedding presents that any of us could, <laughs> could give one another is, a, is a, a large book called, you know, My Insanities that you would give, each person would give my insanities to, uh, to their partner. And think how much time uh, I think we would, uh, we would save. Um, you know, the other thing that romanticism really gets wrong is this, this emphasis on instinct, right? So, you know, the old marriage, marriage of uh, reason, marriage by the family, etc. And then, you know, the romantics tell us there's this marriage by instinct, that special feeling. Well, the thing about it is that, um, you know, you don't need to accept or even know much about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy to just take on board the one key central idea of psychotherapy, which is the way that we love as adults is a reflection and deeply connected to the way that we learned about love as children. That is the foundation stone of psychotherapy. So you look at, an adult, you look at how you are in adult relationships and there are a million connections that you can make with how we learned about love as children. Now the problem with this is that the way that we learned about love as children is likely to have been a bit problematic. Um, it's likely that we received affection, certainly, um, but that in one way or another, without necessarily meaning to, our parents did us a great disservice. In some ways, they damaged us, without necessarily meaning to. Um, and this has very particular consequences for our capacity to find love as adults, because often what we're trying to do in adult love is refind a kind of love that we knew as children. But the kind of love that we knew as children was not necessarily problem-free. Indeed, it was very particularly and interestingly distorted and laden with all sorts of difficulties. And these become the new criteria which we search for in our adult partners. So when people say that in love, what they're looking for is someone to make them happy, to make them content, to bring them happiness, we can't necessarily believe them. Really, what we're searching for when we search for an adult partner is someone who feels familiar. And very often, the kind of people that we meet don't feel familiar in the level of care, generosity, and goodness that they're bringing to us. It just feels a little bit odd. We think, I don't necessarily feel at home with this kind of treatment. You know how it is when you sometimes set up a friend and... Um, on paper, uh, you know, two people are completely perfect, you know, the two CVs match exactly, and you set them up, and then, you know, you have hopeful um, expectations for the date, and then they come back to you, and you say, you know, how did it go? How did the date go? And they say, uh, I don't know, you know, they're really nice. I just, you know, we've got so much in common in a way, all our interests, we do all the same sports and read the same books, etc. but I don't know, something was missing. And I don't know, some chemistry, something. And very often the thing is that our unconscious has recognized that this so-called very nice person 
is perfect, except for they won't make us suffer in, way, in the way that we expect to be made to suffer in love. So they've got to be dismissed. They're just not going to make me unhappy in the way that I've learned to expect that love should make me unhappy. And, you know, we know the situation in its most extreme forms. You know, somebody who can only take someone, who will hit them, who will strike them. But even without the extremes of violence, there are many ways in which we are attracted to people, not so much for their positive sides, but because they feel, as I say, familiar in the degree to which they will frustrate certain of our aspirations for ourselves. Um, there's another problem for, uh, with, you know, with romanticism. Um, and that's really to do with the idea of honesty. You know, romanticism had an extremely high regard for the concept of honesty. And that a relationship, the whole point of a relationship is that you can be honest with another human being. Most of the time, we've got to lie all the time about who we are, what we feel, how are you, I'm fine, you're breaking down inside, etc. You know, we're all in tears inside, we're broken, we've got to put up a front, that's what society demands of us. But finally, we can meet someone and with them, the drawbridge can come down, the walls can come down and we can be ourselves. And there are wonderful moments in the early moments of love, in the early phase of love, when we really do feel that we have found someone who can accept all of us and um, take on board everything that we are. We need to have no more secrets. We can be properly ourselves. And the truth is that being yourself, fully yourself, around another human being is a treat that you should probably spare anyone that you claim to love because <laughs> it's really a little problematic. Now, often it goes a bit like this. Um, you know, th there's... Look, let's be honest, I think no, no kids in the room. Um, often it's a little bit around sex. Um, so in the early days of love, you know, you've been a bit lonely in all areas, including sex, and you meet somebody and, uh, and you say, you know, do you like, you know that thing that you, you could do, like with, with a rope and like uh, handcuffs? Like imagine, if, do, do, have you ever been interested? And they go, wow, yeah, I've always wanted to try that. And that's always, but I've never dared tell anyone. And there's that wonderful sense of intimacy based on there no longer needing to be shame. We no longer need to be ashamed of ourselves. We can be ourselves in the bedroom, etc. And this is a very ecstatic discovery. And it, it really makes us feel so powerful in the world because we, we, we no longer have to be a hunched, hunchback figure. We can now go out into the world and, and um, feel that um, some of our darkest secrets have acceptance and endorsement from another human being. This lovely phase tends to last about three months until, <laughs> until normally the moment goes like this. Not the same for everybody, but a version of this tends to happen. So you've been sharing everything, you've been sharing the, you know, the thing and the thing and the handcuffs, and it's all been fun. And then you're sitting in a cafe with, uh, you know, with, your, with your lover, with whom you've opened your soul and they've opened their soul, and you spot a really quite interesting um, member of the waiting team. And you go, see the waiter over there, like, wouldn't it be fun if, like, you know, the thing with the you know, thing that we like, do? Imagine, like, if they got involved, we asked them to get involved and, like, gave them a number, and then they could come, and then you would be like, watching, and then, and then you turn to your partner, and rather than being this kind of open, they, they actually look in quite a big state of distress. And they look kind of, kind of unhappy and miserable. And you go, wow, wow, I better stop right there. And you're at a fork in the road. And one fork in the road leads to the path of honesty, and another path leads to the path of love. And you've got a choice to make. <laughs> you, 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 you've got a choice to make. Are you, are you going to carry on this anecdote, this, this fantasy, or are you just going to shut up? And most of us are going to shut up at that point. And that's the beginning of a very fundamental moment when we realize that, of course, we cannot be entirely ourselves, not because we're trying to retain a nasty secret from our partner, but because in the name of love, we cannot be entirely ourselves. We have to accept the role of editing 
because the full disclosure of who we are and what we are at every moment to another human being will probably destroy them. And therefore, we need, in the name of love, to hold back and to edit a lot. None of this romanticism prepares us for. Indeed, it makes it look like a betrayal. So it sets up a huge, it's a very, very unhelpful backdrop in which this scenario happens because uh, romanticism insists on authenticity. It's by being totally authentic that you are uh, true to love. Anything else is a betrayal of love. And, well, the facts on the ground are seriously, I believe, in conflict with that romantic commandment and causes a lot of uh, difficulties. Um, I'm not through with the, my reservations about romanticism. Another thing about romanticism that it never really tells, talks about is romanticism never really talks about the practical side of life. Um, in the 19th century, no one, no romantic poet, writer, artist, etc., ever mentions laundry. No, there's absolutely no mention of the fact that every couple who's been together any amount of time will have to spend a lot of time doing laundry, housework, cleaning, uh, raising children, etc. This just goes unmentioned. Um, and this causes us real difficulties because it sets up an expectation that, you know, intelligent, sensitive, soulful people don't really bother about these things. And therefore, that there's no particular emphasis on making an accommodation, a preparation for some of the difficulties that might come in this area. So at some point in a relationship, um, a version of this happens, this kind of scenario happens. Not exactly this, but a version of this happens, which is that a couple who, you know, are very much committed to love and, you know, disagree with their parents and some of their more petty attitudes to things like, you know, etc., where the salt and pepper should go and etc., they, um, they will suddenly have an argument in the bathroom that goes a bit like this. One of the couples will say, um, what's that towel doing there? And the other person goes, oh, I, just, I just had a shower. You go, yeah, but what's it doing on the floor? And you go, yeah, well, I just threw it on the floor because I, I, I got to go and meet Bill. And you go, no, no, I know you've got to meet Bill, but what, what's it doing on the floor? And, and, and the other one goes, well, how do you mean what's it doing on the floor? It's just on the floor. And suddenly there's a kind of new tone of impatience, basically because both partners think that they're very clever and, and they're, very, they're not petty. They're not going to argue about petty things like towels on the floor. That's, again, they associate that with their grandparents or something. You don't, you know, you know, if you're a true romantic, you don't worry about these things. You don't make no accommodation for them. You are too clever to have this sort of argument. And when two people are convinced that they're too clever to have this sort of argument, you know the argument will be bitter. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, and, and so very often there is no accommodation uh, with this sort, this aspect of life. Um, you know, think of poor Madame Bovary in uh, Flaubert's novel. Madame Bovary has been brought up uh, in ideas of love drawn from romantic fiction. So she believes that love is all about guys on horseback and castles and walks through the mist, etc. And then she gets married to this quite nice, but you know, pretty ordinary, regular kind of guy, but on the whole, okay. And um, suddenly she realizes that a lot of her time has got to be spent doing the laundry, organizing the milk and the cheese, and sitting down with her husband while he's doing the accounts, and she's supposed to be organizing the kind of domestic rotor in the evenings, and he's reading the newspaper. And she thinks that her life has gone terribly wrong, that it's a disaster. What has happened? She thought that she was marrying for love, and now she's ended up with this kind of domestic situation. And these doubts unleash a series of uh, 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 processes in her mind which will lead eventually to her suicide and death. That essentially the belief that the practical side of life has no place in a good love life is central to romanticism and a disaster for our chances of uh, uh, love. So, towels. More on that in a minute. Um, the, other thing, the other thing that the romantics um, very much believe is um, the romantics believe that you shouldn't necessarily talk too much to your lover. And that um, talking is often a sign of not really understanding somebody. 
Um, so very privileged space is given in romanticism to that account that we sometimes get at the beginning of relationships that two people have understood one another without needing to talk all the time. So people will say things like, you know, it was amazing, you know, we, we, we were there, we were by the waterfront, we were chatting, and then, you know, sometimes we were just quiet because we just understood, we just, we just knew. You know, I would say one thing and it was amazing, he knew, you know, he, he'd been there before, she understood, she, it's like we had travelled immediately down the same path. We don't need to explain ourselves in the way that I had to in that horrible last relationship, in this one, I just, I could be myself and we're a bit, we're, we're a bit wordless. Um, and the romantics generally believe that too much analysis, too much putting of words on top of feelings is a bad thing. A quintessential romantic belief is that you destroy feelings and emotions by thinking too much about them. I don't know if anybody in the audience feels, some people feel this, that if you think too much, you break things, that, that they're thinking too much is, um, I should have weeded those people out, but there may, a few people have, have come here nevertheless. This is a disaster for a philosopher. It's like, what? <laughs> Hang on. Nevertheless, there are people, uh, uh, radics, I'm, I'm, I'm being nasty, but look, we've all, we all have that feeling sometimes that words can, uh, uh, can break things. Now, and so, in a way, one of the nicest stories of love that romantics tell us is intuitive understanding of one person by another without the medium of words. Again, over the long term, a catastrophe. Short term, charming, long term, catastrophe. One of the things that it leads to is an outbreak of sulking. Romanticism was responsible for a worldwide enormous increase in the prevalence of sulks. Now, what, what is a sulk? A sulk is a feeling of hurt with another person, a wound that the other person has given you, that you are not going to explain to them for the simple reason that they're supposed to love you. And if they love you, they're supposed to know. So, of course, you could explain what's wrong with you, um, but if you had to explain, that would be a proof they didn't love you because love is by its nature wordless. True love is wordless. And that's why, let's say you're coming back from the party where that offensive thing happened uh, and you're kind of silent in the car deliberately. You're not going to say what happened because you're a romantic and they should know. And they say, maybe they're making a few attempts and they go, look, is anything wrong? Nope. Uh, and then so you, you go up, you know, you, you go up the stairs, you, you, you go home, you go to your apartment and uh, they say, you know, come, come in the bedroom and you go, no, and you go into the bathroom, you bolt the door and they say, come on, it's ridiculous. And they're knocking at the door going, come on, just tell me what it is. And you go, mm-mm. And the reason is, the reason is that as a romantic, you believe that a true lover should be able to intuit the contents of your soul through the bathroom panel door, <laughs> through the surface of your body and into your interior. And they should know. So why would you ever bother telling them? So this is a disaster because, unfortunately, even the most well-meaning people simply cannot understand all of us. They can understand bits of us, how we felt maybe when we were humiliated by our father at an early age or how it felt to join a new school at a certain point or whatever. Some things they can just get, but a lot of things, particularly over the long term, just no one can get. You cannot expect the other person to be a mind reader. And yet romanticism places the ability to mind read precisely at the kernel of its vision, the core of its vision of love. Deeply problematic. Deeply problematic. Um, Here's another thing that romanticism uh, uh, talks to us about. It talks to us about um, the way in which when you really love somebody, you love everything about them. Um, Of course, you love the amazing things about them, but, but oddly and touchingly, you quite love the slightly imperfect things about them. And that's why in the early days of love, 
there's a lot of kind of tenderness and excitement around the discovery of the less than perfect sides of somebody that are used, that feed into love and that intensify love. Maybe your partner's got a slight gap between their two front teeth, not a problem. I mean, a problem for an orthodontist, but for you, it's charming, <laughs> it's charming. Um, maybe there's that old pair of pajamas that their mother gave them and they put it on on a cold night and it's got bare prints on it. It doesn't look that glamorous, it wouldn't win any fashion awards, but it's them and it's theirs and it's incredibly sweet and you love them all the more for it. So in a way, in the early days of love, the fragilities and vulnerabilities of another person are part of what makes that person so lovable. Until. <laughs> You're getting the hang of this now. Um, until, maybe about three months in, a version of the following scenario happens. So maybe you've uh, uh, been out for a big night, etc., and it's uh, morning, it's dawn, and you're having some breakfast, and you're having some cereal. Maybe they picked out a kind of granola-ish, sort of quite nutty uh, kind of uh, cereal, and they're next to you, and they're eating their cereal, you're eating your... You got, and you, you just turn to them, and you go, look, are you a cow or something? This just sounds <laughs> disgusting. Just shut your mouth or something. And... You know, this person suddenly turns around and goes, hang on a minute, this is like the third thing that you're criticizing me for in 24 hours. Well, I thought you loved me. And you go, no, no, I, I do love you, but, but you're eating like, in a sort of bovine way. I mean, stop it. <laughs> and they get terribly offended and they go, no one's ever told me that before. And you want to go, yeah, because why would they? I mean, your friend was not going to tell you, your parents are not going to tell you, and your ex probably knew it, but went off to India. So, you know, the point is, no one's going to tell you. Uh, and you sound like a cow. At which, point, at which point, you've got a problem on your hands because romanticism doesn't allow for this sort of situation. It suggests that love is the acceptance of a whole being. And therefore, at one point in the relationship, one person is likely to say to another, if you loved me, why do you criticize me? So there's that if criticism is here, love is here, they should never be together, and if they are ever together, <clears throat> it's a sign that love has failed. This, again, is a disastrous philosophy. The idea that another person could spend any time with us and not spot a whole lot of things that are problematic is really the height of sentimentality. Of course, there's a lot. I mean, are you perfect? If you're not perfect, how on earth do you expect someone not to notice the imperfections and not mind them? But nevertheless, romanticism tells us that no, this has no place. Look, let's look away from that rather unhelpful philosophy to an earlier vision of love. This one developed by the ancient Greeks, which I think is a lot more helpful. The ancient Greeks, very focused on love, as we are, um, but had a very different vision of what love is. They felt that love is admiration for the perfect sides of another human being, for the virtues, the qualities, the accomplishments in the character and achievements of another person. There's other stuff, of course. There's you know, flaws and things, and you may be generous towards them, and you may be forgiving of them, but you don't love them. The word love is reserved for an admiration for what is virtuous and accomplished in another person. And for the ancient Greeks, the whole notion of love is that love should be a process of mutual education in which two people under the auspices of love, undertake to educate one another to become better versions of themselves. And they do this not to be cruel, not as a way of bringing each other down, but because they have the sincerest best interest of the other at their heart. And therefore, love is a process whereby a teacher and a pupil are constantly rotating roles. Everyone is the teacher and everyone is the pupil at certain points and has lots of things to take on board. This is not a sign that love has been abandoned. It is the proof that love is in action. Now, this sounds so weird in the modern age. I mean, if you said to somebody, if you said to your partner, 
I went to listen to this guy at the Opera House, and uh, yeah, he's got some various ideas, and he's written a book, and on this basis, I would like to teach you certain things. I would like to <laughs> deliver a, a, a short seminar, short but to the point seminar, on your character, achievements and nature, way of eating. Um, this would be, be so weird. Again, they're like, what? Why did I thought you loved me, etc. Now, why are we such bad teachers? You know, a lot of relationship arguments can essentially be seen as failed teaching moments. There's something you want to say, and it goes terribly, terribly wrong on the journey to your listener. Why does it go so wrong? Why, why, does, the lesson, why does the teaching lesson uh, uh, fail so badly? Partly because we don't think it's legitimate to teach. So if someone's telling you it's not, your job is not legitimate, you'll be a bit panicked. You're like, oh, wow, I, well, if I'm not supposed to do this, how do I? So you're not relaxed. The other thing, of course, what makes a, a good teacher is that they're calm, is that they're relaxed. And one of the best ways to be a calm teacher is not to mind too much if your lesson doesn't really get through to the other person. So, you know, a, a great maths teacher... You know, they're calm in the classroom because there's not that much at stake. Of course they want their uh, you know, pupils to pick up a bit about trigonometry or whatever, but if they don't and if they flunk their exams, well, there'll be a new lot coming next year. It doesn't really matter. There's not that much at stake. The thing is that in Love's classroom, we are much more tense. We are much more on edge. And the reason is that so much seems to depend on it. And the background of our thoughts is the most terrifying spectre as we're trying to teach. And the terrifying spectre goes like this. I think I've married an idiot. I think I've got to spend the rest of my life with someone who doesn't understand very basic, very important things that matter so much to me, and this person is not listening. And because they're not listening, we're going to ramp up the pressure and the tension, and we're going to start to be rude, and we're going to start to humiliate, and we're going to start to swear. And the terrible problem is that no one has ever, ever managed to teach anyone anything by humiliating them. By the time you are humiliating your partner in order to teach them something, forget it. Bye-bye, the lesson's over. You are never going to get through that way. As we know from HR departments in offices, if you want to teach someone something, it's got to be 99% honey and a tiny, tiny little criticism at the very end. You know, I love this, I love that, I love that. Did you know that thing that... That's maybe how you've got a chance of, of getting through. But we don't do this. So in Love's classroom, we do not accept that love should be a process of mutual education. We know so much about our partners that no one else ever does. We've got a ringside seat on their charming sides and on their insanities in a way that no one ever will. But because we think it's a betrayal of love, that knowledge can't be shared, used, and grown with because we are so brittle and defensive. As students of this, we, we simply fail to accept that the other person, if somebody tries to give us a so-called lecture, we might even use that pejorative term, you know, are you trying to give me a lecture? And, you know, of course, Plato would say, yeah, I'm trying to give you a lecture because I love you. Because I love you, I'm going to give you a lecture and I hope tomorrow you'll give me a lecture. And that's the way it works. But the romantics are like, oh no, I'm not going to stay with her. She gives me lectures all the time. Oh, I must leave her and let me lecture. And so what happens when love's classroom has failed? Well, then the couple, things get rather brittle. And rather than trying to teach, the couple descends into a cycle of mutual nagging and shirking. What is nagging? Nagging is what happens on the other side of an attempt to teach. You're, not gonna, you're no longer try, going to try and teach. You're just going to insist. 
You're going to force the person to believe and to listen. You're going to get very controlling and ministerial. And you're going to insist that they're back at a certain time, that they do this thing. And you don't really care whether you're going to charm your way into their minds or not. You just insist that it's done that way. And meanwhile, nagging always has the counterpart in shirking. The shirking knows that tone. Ah, well, they're going to pick up the newspaper, go upstairs, they're not going to listen. So there's a mutual deafness. Uh, uh, Teaching and learning has gone completely wrong. And that, unfortunately, is very often what happens in relationships under the aegis of uh, uh, romanticism. Now, are we all to despair? Where's this going to go? Can we rescue this nosedive of feelings? Um, Yes, we can. Um, I think there's lots of things to be hopeful about. Sometimes people say to me uh, things like, well, you know, are you not really hopeful about love? Are you saying that like, we should just reduce our expectations? No, no, we shouldn't reduce our expectations. I really believe that we should go into relationships with very high expectations. The problem is that romanticism defined very rightly certain high expectations, but then gave us no way of reaching those expectations securely. It's like it set the bar, but then gave us no way of acceding to that bar reliably. So the task before us, I think, is to build the steps to get to the high place that we've accorded to love. Not, not to necessarily bring down love, but to um, uh, try and find a way. And um, as Anne says, one of, the, uh, one of the characters in the book at some point says, you know, it takes them a long time to realize this, but they do realize that ultimately love is not just something that you feel, it is ultimately a skill that needs to be learned. And it sounds very odd because we're so, we're so in love with the notion of the intuitive relationship in which everything just comes sort of by nature. And if it doesn't come by nature, then it is wrong. And it's so contrary to the way we do other things. You know, we are an incredibly procedural society that believes that there are rules and techniques and tricks and ways of making things happen. But somehow in the area of love, we insist stubbornly on intuition. And it sounds so odd if you compare it with other things. I mean, imagine if I said to you, you know, I'm going to fly a 777 down to Melbourne tomorrow. I'm going to land it by intuition. Or I'm going to perform a piece of brain surgery by intuition. You'd be like, what? That's crazy. Nevertheless, in the area of love, we're ready to embark on you know, 50-year marriages by intuition, just hoping it's all uh, going to go well. Um, so what are some of these skills that we might need to develop? Well, let me give you just a few, and I throw these out, and um, there, of course, be so many more. But I think one of the things that um, can help, and it sounds rather odd, but one of the things that can really help is to learn to see your partner as a small child, probably between the ages of two to three and a half. Basically, to imagine that your partner is of roughly that age. Now, the reason I say this is that all of us nowadays are really pretty good around two to three and a half year olds. So let's imagine you've got one of those things at home and you've, uh, you're, you're cooking a dinner and I don't know, you've made some schnitzel, potatoes, broccoli, and you, you give the kid uh, the, the dinner. And it just goes, and throws the whole dinner on the floor, and like this. And now you're not, you don't hit the child. You don't go, I've had such a hard day at work, and now this? Are you trying to bring me down? Are you trying to crush my character? You go, oh, no, maybe you've got a sore tooth, or you must be quite tired, or maybe it's that jealousy with your sibling it is getting to you. It's hard to share your toys. We'll come up with very gentle explanations of why a piece of behavior has appeared on the horizon that seems pretty mean. We don't necessarily believe that people of that age are mean. We simply feel that they're in some ways hurting, anxious, damaged in some way, and we want to help them. We're generous. Our our adult love affairs do not find us in that kind of mood. I mean, there we're constantly going, you try to bring me down, you're trying to humiliate me, you haven't given me the attention I need. We very much take everything extremely uh, uh, personally. You know, part of the problem is that we don't look like children. 
I mean, this is really unhelpful. Like, if you, you know, one, one of the great things about, about children is that they, they look like children. So you kind of just know that they are a, a, a child. But if you look at me, someone like that, you know, you think, oh, this guy's an adult. He sort of looks like an adult. Uh, so it's quite counterintuitive to go, like, many parts of this character are about two and a half years old. It just, you can't really believe it. Um, but the thing is that you sort of have to believe it. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the problem with psychological wounds and, and distortions is that you can't see them. I mean, it's literally as sort of simple as that. You can't see them. If I've got a broken arm, right, everyone can see that I've got a broken arm. And you start to go, okay, the guy's like messed up his speech because he's got a bit of a broken arm. He must be in pain. And when he's going to walk through the door, we'll hold the door open. We'll make some special accommodation because we know he's not all that well in some way. It's just obvious he's got a problem. Um, The thing is that all of us are kind of like that broken inside in various key ways, but there's no easy way of signaling it, right? We can't signal that we've got these wounds and breakages, etc. And so our partners don't necessarily give us the accommodation that they would. Um, And that's why it's so important to realize that, of course, wandering through the world, everybody is very severely broken and in need of a lot of forgiveness and generally, on the whole, not mean, just frightened. Most people are very, very scared, and the most appalling pieces of behavior normally have fear at the heart of them rather than evil. Um, The other thing that's quite key, uh, I I think, and is a real achievement of love, is to learn to see your partner. um, You know, most of us, after a while, start to see our partners as idiots. They just are a bit of an idiot. And just like, oh, God, an idiot thing has happened again with our our partner. Now, this this is why... Uh, Part of the reason why comedy and humor is so important in a relationship, you have to find a way to access the comedic part of all of you. Now, the interesting thing about comedy is that in comedy, many comic heroes are total idiots. I mean, if you think of someone like David Brent or uh, Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm, these guys are just total, total idiots. But when we're watching the shows... um, we kind of do this amazing thing, which is we both know they're idiots, but we kind of like them. We do this amazing metamorphosis. We start to see them as lovable idiots, kind of lovable idiots. And that is such a piece of ethical imagination. To turn someone from an idiot to a lovable idiot in your imagination is a major piece of maturity. And if we're able to achieve that, even sometimes in love, we will have learned very much how to temper our more punitive interpretations of who it is that we've uh, uh, got together with. Um, you know, the other thing that we need, of course, is to really reckon with our habit of getting into crushes. It, it was very charming at a certain point how easily we've developed crushes on people. And, you know, for a time it was thrilling and, you know, it really kept us going through certain years. But, like, we really have to get over the crush thing. Um, because the thing is, you don't need to know someone at all well to know, even though they look completely charming. And it was lovely to see them in the airline queue or at the supermarket briefly, etc. And that's why you got a little tetchy when you got home, just because they were sort of lingered in your imagination that there was kind of an angel walking around the aisles of the supermarket or at the airport, and now you've had to go home, nah, sadly. But there was this angel... We've got to get over it. And the reason we can get over it is by an absolute piece of scientific certainty, which is that there are no angels, there are only human beings, and every human being wandering the earth is very, very problematic from close up. You don't know how this person is disturbed and would drive you mad, but you know, you have to know and take on board that they would. They just would. If you knew them better, despite their charms, and honestly, their you know, ankles look lovely, and their, con- their, their little bit of conversation that you had at the conference was just very promising, but the point is, deep down, they will cause you immense trouble, because not they're evil, they're human, and everybody does this. So, 
in, in a way, you know, we're so obsessed nowadays, partly because of technology, with the idea of finding the perfect person, the right person. We're all the time swiping left and right in the search for that right person. The, you know, the truth is there is no such character. Everybody is going to be wrong in substantial areas. There is no such thing. Compatibility, ultimately, is an achievement of love. It isn't and can't and shouldn't be its precondition. And therefore, the notion that we can only really get together with somebody when we have found somebody who matches us entirely. The person who is right isn't the person who agrees and condones every aspect of our character. It's somebody who negotiates the differences between two people in a particular way, with a particular generosity and, uh, dare I say it sometimes, humor. Uh, uh, this is so the so-called right person, but they're not that they are in some ways, magical ways, uh, uh, perfect. Um, Look, the other thing, uh, let's mention it just very quickly, around sex. Um, you know, we live in an age of very high expectations around sex. Romanticism has prepared us for um, uh, very high things. Uh, and, well, the whole subject is a little bit of a veil of tears, to be honest. Um, there are really two things that we want in this area, uh, and they run in completely opposite directions. All of us want safety. We want to be really safe and loyal with somebody, and loyalty brings with it safety. So we really want safety. And the other thing we really, really want is excitement, and the two just point in completely different directions. <laughs> and, but, you know, periodically, and it happens on a kind of 20-year basis, people come along and go, ah, 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 I found a solution to this kind of, like, safety, excitement thing. And you go, yeah, what is it? So in the 60s, people were telling us, it's called free love. So basically, the deal is that you get a bit of both. You get, like, safety in one corner, and you get, like, excitement, too, and it's really great. And nowadays, we're deep in the age of polyamory. So a lot of people go, like, there's this thing I've heard. It's called polyamory, and it's great. It gives you everything. And, you know, jealousy is just this thing. It's dreamt up by capitalism. And uh, you just, you know, <laughs> head out there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it just, uh, it just is not true. These two things are deeply incompatible. I'm not going to go into too much why. We can discuss that later if you like. But essentially, you really have to make a choice between varieties of suffering. What, what, kind, of suffering, what kind of suffering do you want to go for? Like, do you want to go for, you know, and, and also what kind of upside is more important to you? Do you want to go for like the safety loyalty thing, which is terrific, you, get, you know, fantastic kind of coziness, really sweet, but you know, you will be missing out. And sometimes in the suburbs, on a Saturday night, you'll be like, oh, wow, you know what's going on in the bars and the kind of, the, the kind of swinging uh, places of the city, and it's not for you, so you've made your choice. And then of course, <laughs> Of course, there's the other choice, which is excitement, which is terribly thrilling, and new people all the time, and the first time you undress them, and it's all thrilling, thrilling, but of course, it's utter chaos. Your life's full of recriminations, full of jealousy, full of confusion, the children are in a mess, but you know, there's the excitement. So really the choice before us is what variety of suffering do you want to go for? Do you, you want to go for the chaos bit or the kind of boredom and saltification bit? Which one? It's like a choice. And you know, it's funny, it's good you're laughing because I, I, re I recently went... <laughs> I recently went to the United States and did a book tour, and um, it didn't happen so much on, on the East Coast, which is like more closer to a kind of European sensibility, but by the time I got to California, by the time I was talking about this, there was literally a stunned silence in the room. I'm like, what? What? Well, you're, you're saying like this, you can't make things perfect? What? We, 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 live, in, we live in LA. Like, what? Um, but of course, I think, you know, one, one of the great contributions, you know, Britain is not responsible for very much that's um, totally perfect, but one of its greatest exports, one of the greatest British exports is melancholy. <laughs> and, and, you know, melancholy is a really kind of useful emotion sometimes, because it's not, it's not fury, it's not, it's not rage, it's like, yeah, like, you know, life's imperfect, but I'm dealing with it, I'm, I'm coping with it, I'm, you know, I've got Morrissey, I've got Bach, I'm handling it, I'm, it's under control. 
and, and, I, and I think this is an area, yeah, this is an area where we may, we may want to uh, have recourse to that peculiar British gift to humanity. Um, look, you know, am I saying that we should always stick with people? Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, are we in danger of saying that, that in that case anyone is worth sticking with? I, look, I don't want to say that. Um, in many ways, you know, marriage is a pretty nasty thing to do to somebody that you claim to love. It's, pretty, it's putting them through some pretty, pretty difficult uh, uh, stresses. But, you know, and there are not, undoubtedly sometimes people that you should leave, some relationships which should be broken up. Um, how can you tell? How do you know whether you should leave somebody? And, you know, I think there's almost a kind of simple rule of thumb. I think, you know, if you can look at your life, honestly survey its good and bad sides, and if you can honestly pinpoint all the things that are making you profoundly unhappy to your partner, if you look around and you think, okay, yeah, all the things that are really bringing me down, it's them. It, it really is them. It's them. Leave. If you, if you really can feel that, just leave. Right? Then you should leave. But if you honestly take an audit of your sources of unhappiness and the many causes for which they're uh, you know, reverberating through your soul, and you look at your partner and you go, I'm not sure if I can fully blame them for everything, <laughs> then stay, stay. Because what, what, you may, what you may have encountered is some of the unhappiness of existence in the company of another person rather than because of another person. So easy to merge the two. I mean. Great Britain, Britain, has done exactly this with its marriage to the European Union. Uh, it, it very much believed that all of its unhappiness could be pinpointed to this thing, by getting rid of it, it would be happy, and now it's discovering a lesson that many people in relationships have also discovered painfully when, it, when, it, when it's too late. Um, um, should we even bother with marriage? Uh, my novel is about marriage, in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a very much a novel focusing on long-term relationships with a with marriage. Is there any point to it anymore? You know, many articles, normally about one a week in a major broadsheet newspaper, it's always about, is marriage still in? Is it still relevant? And, of course, it doesn't really make sense from all sorts of points of view. Like, if you look a, if you look a, co a sober look at marriage, it's completely insane. It's like, hang on, I'm going to give half of all my belongings, and, you know, still nowadays people don't invest heavily in lawyers to kind of make things easy. We kind of jump headlong into marriage, and we still do it despite all the reasons why we might not. So why do we do this? And is it just a kind of insanity? Well, I don't think so. I think that the very fact that we make ourselves go through marriage and we invite all our friends and we have a huge wedding, so it would be so embarrassing if we had to call them all up and go, you know what, you know that TV you bought me? Really sorry, it's only been three months, but I'm quitting, right? Why do we, why do we publicly betroth ourselves to another person? Because I think a mature part of us knows that we benefit from the cage of marriage. It is a cage, but we put ourselves in it, we lock ourselves, and we throw away the key ourselves. Not because we're crazy, but because we realize that there are sides of our character that really can only develop in an environment in which neither of us can quit the room immediately. <laughs> that actually the ability to run away, so tempting though it is, is not always a benefit to the things that we've got to work through. So we willingly uh, encage ourselves because we realize that there is some kind of piece of maturity, uh, some piece of growing up that is going to happen when we are locked together in a situation which we can't immediately, except at the huge cost and huge embarrassment. Embarrassment's very important. We're willingly entering into a situation which it would be deeply embarrassing to leave. We're not simply crazy. We're aware of the debt that maturity owes to being slightly locked into a, a, a situation. So look, 
I do believe that it is possible to have long-term uh, uh, relationships. I just think we need to run through a kind of checklist. When are we ready for love? When are we ready to really embark on this long-term business of love? I think you're ready to really go for it in love. When you finally and conclusively accept that you really are crazy and you have really quite a good handle on your craziness. And not least, you have a really good handle on your partner's craziness and you have an absolute awareness that anyone you meet, even the most charming person on a train, is going to be very imperfect because that's human nature. When you're ready to do the laundry, when you're ready to discuss towels, ad infinitum, when you're ready not merely to insist that others will guess what's in your heart, but you may even have to use words to spell it out very, very patiently over long periods, um, and, you're ready that, and you're ready to believe that all of this, with a dose of humor belongs to a sincere relationship, then, ladies and gentlemen, I think you are ready for love, and I would commend you to move forward on it. That's all from me. We've got a bit of time for questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there, there are some mics, and so do, do approach them with a, a question, a confession, um, a vulnerability. Uh, we're among friends. Um, yes. Brave, brave lady here, number two. Thank you very much. My question is about the tools that you spoke of, the craziness quotient you talked about that we all should be adopting and acknowledging. Is there a system that you think you could be developing, just like we have for job interviews and those sorts of things and for quite uh, sophisticated dating sites that aren't just related to how big certain bits are, um, but about um, the compatibility? Because in, uh, as, you know, as you referenced earlier, time gone by, we had arranged marriages, we had elders. So with the absence of that system, is there a new portal, a new drop-down yeah. menu well, that you have in mind? You know, it's interesting because, in a way, Silicon Valley is very romantic as a, as, a, as a kind of institution and very much believes in helping us to find the right person. And if you look at most of the technological tools that have appeared in the last 15 years, an enormous number are designed to increase our choices and to try and direct us towards this person called the right person. And I, I try to hint um, that, in a sense, that's useful and, in a sense, it's unhelpful because this emphasis on rightness... And this notion that just with a superior piece of technology and algorithm, we will get to a person with whom there will be no friction sets us up rather dangerously for the reality of love, which is that everybody is a different person. We, we've all come from a womb, let's remember. We've all come from a womb in which we didn't have to speak, in which our needs were met, as it were, just automatically through an umbilical cord. And it takes a good long time, good 50 years or so, before we realize that we have actually left that environment <laughs> and, that we, and, that, and that no one can fully understand us. That we're, you know, if you're lonely with, say, 40% of your life only, you're doing really well. But I mean, the idea that you're not going to be lonely is very misguided. And therefore, I would be wary of utopian experiments with matching and constant attempts to match. What we really need is you know, apps and bits of technology that teach us patience, that teach us resourcefulness, inner resourcefulness, that teach us forgiveness, that teach us humor. To, the, to date, um, that hasn't happened at all. There are no apps. You know, it was interesting. I was invited to a Google conference um, the other day in, in the UK. And um, 
Eric Schmidt, uh, the, the chairman of, of Google, was talking about um, what, he, what Google was planning uh, in the next sort of 15 years. And it was like putting people on Mars and curing cancer and uh, like, you know, x-ray vision, I don't know, all sorts of things, amazing things. And then somebody in the audience says, you know, Mr. Schmidt, is there anything that you think Google can't do, like things that are beyond technology? And he laughed and he went, well, we're not exactly about to invent an app to teach people to be more forgiving. And he laughed. And anyway, I, as though like, what a mad thing. So then, uh, fortunately, I, I sidled up to him at, at, at the reception afterwards and said, Mr. Schmidt, you, you're curing cancer, but you think it's impossible to create a piece of technology which will assist us in the task of being more forgiving. I profoundly disagree with you. And uh, anyway, we had a kind of conversation. But I, I think that, look, um, to some extent, my book is a piece of technology, uh, very old-fashioned, glued together, doesn't move or sing or light up, but it's essentially a tool, a piece of technology. I, I, I wrote a book, I, I don't like entertainment, I don't like entertaining people for the sake of it, I am a teacher, and I've written this novel. It's not boring, really. Well, it's, nothing happens in it, really, but, but, <laughs> but, but really, it's following two people in their attempt. They go from being romantics who believe that love is just a feeling, to slowly, 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 they realize they've got, they're going to break up, and they're going to create a disaster in their lives unless they learn some lessons of love. And the, the novel is, you know, taking you through that journey. It's an attempt to teach through the medium of a, of, of a novel. And I think that we need that sort of intervention into our lives. And Anne very kindly mentioned the School of Life, which is opening. The School of Life is dedicated to trying to skill people up in this area. It sounds so unromantic, and, and I apologize for it sounding so unromantic. If you said, I've just come back from a class in which I've learned how to interpret the moods of my partner, you think, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Really? You went to that poor you. And of course, the old thing is when people go, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, I'm seeing a therapist. Everyone goes, oh no, poor, poor you. The, the relation, we're seeing a marriage therapist. Oh my God, well, it's clearly about to be over. Whereas, of course, there is no surer sign that a relationship is on safe ground than that a couple has taken the step to try and examine it logically. So, anyway, I'm rambling, but I hope that in some way answers your question. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> other thoughts? Um, I just wanted to know, what are your thoughts on the search for love through things like Tinder? Yes. Okay, let's go back to that. Um, I, think, um, I think that Tinder, again, excites us because it makes the choosing of people. It, it, it places the emphasis on the story of love at a very particular moment, which is the moment of choice. And... It's not surprising because our culture is so obsessed. Most love stories are not love stories. They're the stories of two people finding each other, overcoming certain obstacles and getting together. It then ends, the story then ends. So I don't really have a problem with Tinder. I'm sure it's fun. The thing is, if you have a bit of a high profile and you're married, sadly, you can't go on Tinder. Um, <laughs> so I have no idea. I have no idea about Tinder. Um, but um, that was a joke. That was a joke, <laughs> joke, joke. Um, uh, but, but it places the emphasis in the wrong place, which is it leads to an impatient search. You're throwing a lot of human beings away. Look, I, I, as a secular Jew, I love, I love the, the Christian idea that once you know about love, you could love anyone. And, and Christianity really emphasizes this point, like you could love anyone. You could love a leper. You could love someone with leprosy. So imagine Twitter breaks down and goes, actually, stop this choice. You're gonna, we've chosen you a leper. 
Please love them. We're like, oh no, oh, I don't want to love a leper. Come, I can't swipe. You're trying to swipe and the thing doesn't swipe. You got, you're stuck with the leper, right? Wouldn't necessarily be bad. It would teach us a lot of things. And I think that the more you know about love, the more you know about love, the less important it is who you're loving. I don't mean that you haven't noticed that you're loving a particular person, but you realize that everyone and that the act of loving anyone is going to require many of the same resources. And I think that our technological Tinderish age has deeply forgotten that lesson. It is the lesson of art. You know, if you think of what are the novels of Dostoevsky, but a constant attempt to take us behind the scenes of people who look pretty disgusting at first swipe. Like, you wouldn't have gone, ah, oh, Raskolnikov, mm, lovely, match. Right, you're a murderer, murderer, Napoleonic visionary and egomaniac. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have gone on a date, right? But, but, but Dostoevsky takes you behind the scenes and goes, you know, behind this profile is a human and discovers the humanity behind the profile. And I, I worry that our age is getting ever less adept at that maneuver. But for me, that maneuver is love. Okay, three. Um, is, is there a particular model for your notion of um, uh, revealing your insanities to a prospective partner? Or is that... <laughs> Or yeah. is that something that you expect would just emerge naturally in, in conversation? No, I, I, I think it's... Look, I think it's very important to do it at a time when your insanity has not wounded the other person. The, the reason why most of us are so unforgiving to the flaws of others is because we encounter those flaws at moments when they've damaged us. So it's like, look, I know about your father and how horrible he was, or your mother and how, you know, she didn't love you enough. But like, frankly, I don't care, because right now you've ruined my weekend. So like, I'm not really in a mood to listen to that stuff. It's like, I don't care that you were once a small child who was, you know, tender, because actually, frankly, you've just destroyed my relationship with my best friend out of some weird misguided feeling of jealousy. And I don't know where it comes from, but I don't care. So in other words, you are not going to be sympathetic when it's damaged you. So the time to do it is when the other person feels relaxed, tender, and you need to find some strategy. You know, the art of timing. Most of the time, we are so... Because there's not a teaching culture within relationships, we feel that we've got to get our lesson out at the very moment when we feel it. It's like, of course, the romantics are all about authenticity. So it's like, you, you know, it was all this cult of being authentic to your feelings. You've got to be true to your feelings. That's the, you know, I mean, really? You really want to be true to all your feelings? Ooh, that's going to be trouble. It's like, I think you're looking a little ugly today. Oh, I just had to express that because I'm a romantic. So, you know, your, your thighs are looking a little fat, but I'm a romantic, so I had to tell you. Jean-Jacques Rousseau told me to tell you that your thighs are a little fat. So that's really a kind of problem. So do it, yeah. Do it when they're calm and um, do it strategically uh, and trying not to hurt somebody with your insanity. You'll find a better result. So, number four. Hi. Um, oh, God, that's loud. Sorry. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, uh, this is a bit of an uncomfortable question, but money. Um, is it, well, I've got to start again. <laughs> I, I, I'm under strict instruction. I'm going to go to art school next year, and I'm under strict instruction to not fall in love with another person who wants to become an artist because I will end up being poor and sad and lonely. Um, and I just wanted to ask the question if practical things such as money, houses, towels, whatever, um, can actually really break up a relationship or if those are negotiable things. Okay, that's such a good question because it... It really sits on top of this romantic, classical divide, if you like, in the, in the, in the view of love. Um, the last writer 
to talk head-on about love and money is Jane Austen in European fiction. And her novels are obsessed with money. Um, not to the detriment of everything else, but they take a really fascinating look. I mean, you know the way it works with, with Jane Austen novels. Very often you'll be told that such and such a character was worth 20 pounds a year, and you furiously look back at them and go, what was that, 20 pounds? Like, what does that mean? That doesn't sound like very much. And then some of those like worth 40 pounds, and they got an annuity, and they got a... So, like, you're totally told the financial status of all the characters. And this can sound quite weird because we are romantics. And romantics believe, as you correctly uh, uh, suggest that love, uh, love and money have nothing to do with one another, that true love has absolutely nothing to do with money, that love is a feeling and money is this horrible, dirty thing. And Jane Austen is the last person to have an intelligent, sane view of, 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 of money because she doesn't say... There are characters in her novels. In Mansfield Park, um, there are these characters whose name I now forget. I forget her name. There's one, there's one couple that gets together... Uh, primarily for money, because they're financially interested and only financially interested, and they have a terrible life. Um, and, but Fanny Price, the heroine, has got, she's a little bit interested in money. In other words, she sensibly knows that money has got things to contribute to a good relationship. And she doesn't see this as a sign that she's an evil person. She simply sees it as a practical recognition of what money can do uh, and what practical sides of life do to emotions. And, you know, I would recommend a, a Jane Austen view of uh, your dilemmas in art school. In other words, it's not that you're a bad person that you think of it, and frankly, yes. I mean, you know, there are plenty of extremely nice people uh, who are making a, a, a miserable, dry, brittle living in the financial sector who would love to infuse their soul with a more artistic uh, uh, temperament. Uh, and I would recommend you do that. I have a very simple question to say. Uh, just to give my question actually is how do I bring romanticism in my marriage after being married 37 years today? Right. And well, congratulations. Our marriage actually was an arranged marriage according to our culture. Our parents chose each other for us and we blindly accepted it even though we had our own personal views, but we said yes, because yes. our parents said he's stable, he has his own business, he will keep you safe and secure. <laughs> money, money being the issue. Yes, well look, I think um, that some of the thing that happens is that when you love somebody, you want to lay claim to them, you want to own them, you want to possess them. But to a great extent, I think we don't appreciate things or people that we possess. We don't appreciate what we have. And I think that, um, you know, the question that you're asking is not really about romanticism, it's about appreciation. And I think it holds true not just for relationships, but for everything. Um, you know, Marcel Proust was once asked by, a, uh, newspapers were doing silly questionnaires even then, and he was asked by a newspaper how, um, how he would feel if he heard that a meteorite was heading for the earth and would soon destroy civilization. This is like 1919. And he said that it would be a marvelous thing because suddenly everything in life would be so full of meaning, beauty, charm. He would rush to go to museums that he hadn't been to. He would undertake journeys. He would fall in love. He would appreciate his friends, all of these things. And, that what, and he said rather poignantly, the thing that prevents us from noticing all of these things is the feeling that it's forever and that we already possess them, when in fact all of us might die this evening, he says. Um, uh, he was a hypochondriac, but a, a, a good one. Um, but I think we can take a little lesson from Proust's book. 
imagine you and your husband might die this evening. That's the, the single most romantic, this might be your last evening. That's what you should do. Um, we've, got, we've got about 14 seconds for the last question. So this last question. To us tonight, but also my, my question relates to what you spoke to, spoke about in the beginning, which is you, you said we're in we're in the age of romanticism right now. What what do you think has caused the persistence of the age of romanticism, like for centuries? Yeah. What do you think the next evolution is for love and persistent relationships? Look, I don't want to sound like one of those guys, but to some extent, it is to do with the commercial system we live within. It's so much easier when you're trying to sell someone toothpaste to sell it with that initial heady, ecstatic moment of love. There's a huge interest in talking about that. It's, look, it's deeply exciting. The moment two people get together is one of the most exciting things in the world. So no wonder we keep scratching that bit of human nature. It's no surprise, if I was making a Hollywood movie and I was spending 100 million pounds and the choice was between, you know, uh, you know a, a long-term relationship or that heady moment, you know, you go for the heady moment. I mean, the only filmmaker who's ever made a sensible film in the last sort of 10 years about marriage is Richard Linklater with his beautiful film Before Midnight, which is about the only adult description of love. And it was a very small grossing movie, but please go and see it if you uh, can, because it's one of the great films. But, it, you know, we're surrounded by people who have a lot of interest in exciting us around the early moments of love. But the fight back begins, and it begins here. And it begins with a novel I've written, and, <laughs> and, uh, and with you listening. So uh, I encourage all of you to come and see me afterwards, get your book signed, and to begin a new way of approaching love, not in a cold way, not with cynicism or with pessimism, but with a healthy belief that the best way to get our relationships to go well is to overcome certain of our romantic illusions. Thank you so much. <laughs>